This is Pastor Darren at Racine Bible Church, and you are listening to our Advent series, Fall on Your Knees. As you know, our Advent series this year is entitled Fall on Your Knees. And today and the next two Sundays, we're going to be examining three distinct reasons why we should fall on our knees at Christmas time and adore God and praise Him for what He has done for us in Christ. Next week, the focus is going to be on Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, and the present help and comfort uh, that Jesus provides us. The following week, the focus is on Christ as our glorious God and the hope that we have in his return. Today's focus is on what Christ did for us as our Savior. And of course, it's not unusual for us to talk about this theme at Christmas. It's uh, all over the place in Scripture. It's right there in the Christmas story. And we see it as early as the angel appearing to Joseph and saying about Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The very name Jesus has built right into it the idea that he is our savior. A famous uh, Christmas passage in Luke chapter 2 that we all hear a lot this time of year. The angels said to the shepherds out in their fields, Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If you have been using our Advent devotional, which I I hope you have, uh, you've been seeing this theme over the past several days. Jesus our Savior. This morning, we want to focus our attention on one particular aspect of the saving work of Jesus. And I think rightly understood, rightly comprehended, it can really transform how we worship God and how we think about and celebrate the birth of Christ. And I'm going to give you the premise of the sermon right up front. As believers in Christ, we tend to be very aware of what Christ came to save us from. We know we're sinners, we know we deserve the judgment of God, and we know Jesus came to save us from judgment. But I don't think we always think clearly about what Christ came to save us to. The teaching of Scripture is not just that Christ came to save us from our our, our natural-born status as sinners, but also to transform us to an entirely different status. Specifically, when we're lost in our sins, we're slaves. And when we've been rescued from our sins by Christ, we become sons. And there may not be a single person in this room, myself included, uh, who really understands what that means when we think about our status as sons of God. It's a lot to comprehend. And I think we're in good company, actually, because some of the early churches in um, shortly after the time of Christ, in the time of the apostles, struggled with this same thing. And I want to invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. If you are using a pew Bible, it's on page 974. The apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Galatia. And no doubt, the believers in Galatia would have joined us in singing the praises of God 
they would have joined us in thankfulness for God saving us from our sins through Christ. But in the way they lived their lives, in the way they were trying to relate it to God, they made it evident that they didn't totally grasp what it meant. They were still relating to God as if they were slaves and not as if they were sons. And the main symptom of that disease expressed itself in the attempt to relate to God through performance, through works of the law, through law-keeping. And to relate to God through law-keeping, through performance, is to live as if Jesus never came. It's to live as if Christmas never happened. I've given you there in your notes a three-point outline for us to follow this morning. It's very simple. What we were, what God did, and what we are. What we were, what God did, and what we are. And what we were was slaves to law-keeping. We were slaves to law-keeping. If you're there in Galatians chapter 4, let's read the first three verses. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, it might be helpful to have a little bit of background here to understand what Paul is trying to tell us. In Paul's world, the moment of growing up, of officially becoming an adult was, was very important from a religious and legal standpoint. It was much more, actually much more dramatic and defining that day than it is for us. Today, if I said, well, when does someone become an adult? You might think, well, 18, I guess legally you become an adult. Uh, but, but we would admit that on your 18th birthday, nothing necessarily life-changing or significant happens. I was thinking about this this week and I can't actually remember my 18th birthday. Now, it was only 10 years ago, so it shouldn't have been, shouldn't have been that hard. Uh, I mean, rounding a little bit, but uh, I, it wasn't that big of a deal, right? But for cultures in biblical times, that's not the case. For, for the Jews, for example, a young man, sometime after his 12th birthday, would become a son of the law. He would go through a ceremony and he would literally pass from childhood to adulthood. He would go from having none of the rights of being a man to having all of the rights and responsibilities of being a Jewish man under the law. It was life-changing. But remember, Paul wasn't just a Jew. He was also a Roman. And actually, I think here in this text, he's speaking uh, more about the, the situation for Romans when they become adults. For the Romans, there was, it was also a very definitive time for the coming of age from a, a son to be, go from a, a boy to a man. But for the Romans, that moment was decided and fixed by the father when he felt the time was appropriate. A Roman boy became a man at a festival called the Liberalia, and the, the father would set when the boy was ready for it. And it wasn't just the case that the boy became a man, he also became the true son of his father. Today, we might think of uh, us outgrowing being a son. You may think, well, you know, a boy grows up and he doesn't really think of himself as a son anymore, now he's his own man. It wasn't that way in Rome. It was the reverse. 
It was at the time when a boy was pronounced a man that his father would formally adopt him, say, this is my son, and he's the heir of everything I have. That young man would exchange the clothing of a child for the white toga of an adult, a Roman man and a Roman citizen. So becoming a man in ancient Rome was extremely significant. It took someone from the the, the realm of having no rights, not even the valid status as a son, to all the rights and freedoms of being a full citizen of Rome and the heir and representative of his father. On the other hand, when a Roman child was a minor in the eyes of the law, his status was really no different than that of a slave. Even if he was the future owner of a vast estate, he had no rights to it. His life was constantly under guard and control of adults around him. Uh, the, the text here uses these words, uh, guardians and managers. These were people who were given the, the task, the responsibility of kind of controlling the life of the Roman child. They often were slaves themselves. And the life of a Roman child had, had less or, or no more freedom than the life of a slave. The very slaves who were guarding this child, that child had no more rights and privileges than those very slaves. In verse 3, Paul says, in the same way also when we were children. He's comparing all of us who know Christ to who we were before Christ. Before Christ, even if you were involved in religion, even if you were part of a church, even if in some way, shape, you would say, way, shape, or form, you'd say you, you knew God or knew of God, you're no different than little Roman children who have no rights, no different than slaves. As a matter of fact, Paul says right there that when we were children, we were slaves. You see it there in verse 3? We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That term, elementary principles, is the word used to refer to the ABCs, to the alphabet. And Paul's referring to elementary teachings regarding rules and regulations, which is the way all kinds of people attempt by their own efforts to justify themselves before God. It's a way of achieving salvation by our own efforts. It's the ABCs. We have a four-year-old son, Joel, and uh, we'll, we'll be reading him stories or watching movies with him or something, and he'll, he'll ask us, is that person good or bad? He always wants to know that. Is that person good or bad, right? This past week, I was reading him in his children's Bible, the story of Abraham and Sarah, and we're on one page, and the story is saying that Sarah didn't believe the promise of God. She laughed at that promise that she was going to have a baby. And the very next page shows Sarah smiling, holding the promised baby. And Joel says to me, so is she good or bad? Like, you know, she, she, did, she didn't believe God on the last page, and now she's got this promise she's received from God. And, you know, I try to wax eloquently, you know, I'm, I'm telling you about God's promise to her and faith. And she lacked faith, but God's great, you know, I explained this to him, and he stops, he just kind of looks at me and says, like, so is she good or bad? Like, 
that helped nothing at all, right? But, you know, that's, that's not unusual. That's actually totally normal. It's normal to think in terms of good and bad and relating to God on the basis of our performance. We are born that way. We are born with self-justifying natures. Grace is contrary to our natures, which is why not only do you have trouble receiving it, but you have trouble granting it. Before Christ, we are all slaves to some basic principle of the world and the flesh. This was case, the case for the Jews here who were enslaved to a mindset of performance of the law. But this was also the case for the Gentiles. Their pagan religions prescribed various rituals and ceremonies and things they needed to do to achieve salvation. Either way, for Jew or for Gentile, men were putting themselves in bondage because this kind of approach is vain and fruitless and ultimately damning. Perhaps some of you have come out of legalistic backgrounds. Maybe there was a, a veneer of the gospel, but your Christianity was, was more one of doing the right things, following the right rules, looking good on the outside. And maybe even there was, there was genuine gospel reality there, but your own heart still sought to justify yourself before God by your behavior. Is it good to strive to live a godly life? Absolutely. Could we even say that for a Christian, it is necessary that we pursue holiness and grow in holiness? Absolutely. But that holiness has to come from the inside out. It can't be imposed externally. We, we obey Christ because he has loved us. We love him in return, and the way we show our love is by our obedience. It cannot be that we attempt to earn his love by doing good things. Relating to God on the basis of performance is a form of slavery, and it's because men and women were in bondage that God sent his son. That's number two, point number two. What God did is sent his son. He sent his son. Let's look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 4 starts with one of the most glorious ideas in Scripture, but God. Our status is never the final word. Our lostness is never the end of the story. God is greater than whatever is keeping us from him. And, and so to eliminate what was keeping us from him, he sent his son. And when we read that phrase, born of woman, here in Galatians, our minds ought to go right back to where Spencer was last week in Genesis chapter 3. Right? Man and woman fell into sin, and God made a promise that one day the seed of the woman, one born of woman, would come and deliver us from the penalty of our sin. One day, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And that's what God was doing in sending Jesus. And he was born under the law, Paul says, born under the law. He not only came to us, not only became one of us, he also submitted himself to the same principles that we live under. He came under law so that he could free us from the law. Calvin said, he took upon himself the shackles of the law so that those who were shackled by the law could go free. That's the great 
exchange of the gospel. And this happened, Paul says in verse 4, in the fullness of time. Like a, a Roman father who decides the time is right for his son to become a full citizen, a full man. God decided the time was right to send his son into the world. And humanly speaking, we can see this perfect timing by God as we look at the historical factors that were present at the time when Jesus arrived. Christ came during what's known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. This was about a 200-year period of history when the Roman Empire was relatively stable and there was a relative peace there. Travel and commerce could occur. There were the Roman uh, road system was well-developed and people could travel fairly easily throughout the empire. All of the various territories in the Roman Empire, which was essentially the known civilized world, they were linked physically and politically and even linguistically. Greek had become the common language of the entire empire. And so someone from Egypt could talk to someone from Macedonia, could talk to someone from Italy or Israel. There was a common language. Religiously, the, the Jewish synagogue system made it so that when Christian evangelists would arrive in a city, they could always go to a synagogue and stand up and preach the gospel to Jews and to, to Gentile proselytes and start the seeds of the gospel. On the other hand, there was a, there was a spiritual hunger at this point in time. Even, even pagan philosophers and, and uh, those who, who practiced pagan religion recognized that there was a moral decay in the Roman Empire. It was flourishing economically and morally. It was collapsing. So all of this meant the timing was ideal for the spread of the message of the gospel when Christ came. It was the fullness of time. And of course, beyond all these human factors, we know it was the fullness of time because it was the time God chose, right? His timing is always perfect. And in God's timetable, the fullness of time was when the angel came to Mary and said, behold, you will have a son. Look again at verse 5. God sent his son to redeem those who are under the law. And this word redeem, or word redemption, this is a church word, right? This is a word that we use a lot in church world, even if we're not always totally understanding what it means. The word redeem is a, is a very appropriate word for Paul to use here because it meant to buy out of slavery. That's what it meant. And so you have the picture here of a wealthy man walking into a slave market, identifying someone who is up for auction at a slave auction and begin bidding. And then he wins the auction, purchases the slave, and sets him free. He didn't purchase him for a new form of bondage, but purchased him out of bondage. All men were slaves to their own devices, and Christ, as it were, walked into the slave market and paid the price to purchase every last believer for himself and set men free. And of course, that analogy is insufficient, right? Because he didn't pay with gold or silver, but paid with his own precious blood. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. 
we celebrate what God did. He sent his son to redeem us so we might escape the slavery of law-keeping and performance. And that leads us to our last point. What we are. What we are is sons of God. What we are is sons of God. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's another problem with my little uh, slave auction analogy. Because go back to the wealthy man walking into the slave auction and paying the price to set a slave free. What Jesus did went beyond setting the man free. It led to something. It led to what he says in verse 5, adoption as sons. About midway through the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation, which, de- which declared that on January 1st, 1863, all slaves in the Confederacy would be set free. Now, there were some who completely agreed with his position on slavery, who were not in favor of the Emancipation Proclamation. For this reason, they were concerned about the hundreds of thousands, millions of slaves who would be set free from slavery, but not set free to anything. They had no money. They had no property. They had no land. They had nothing with which to make a living. And there was concern with setting people free from slavery, but not to anything. But that's not what God does when he redeems us. In Christ, we're freed from our bondage to law and sin, and then we're adopted as sons. Imagine that wealthy man saying this, paying the price, purchasing this man out of slavery, and then saying this, tonight, my dad is having a feast. And at the feast, he's going to adopt you as his son. And so tonight, you're going to have the status of being the son of the most powerful, most wealthy man in the empire. And everything that I have is also going to be yours. You're going to be able to call him dad like I do. No one in the empire is going to be able to touch you because you belong to him. That's what happens when we are redeemed from our slavery. It's not just a redemption from, it's a redemption unto, from slavery unto sonship. We who are once alienated from God by our sin have been brought right into his family. But we're not just made children of God. We're made sons of God. Now, It may offend some of our egalitarian sensibilities here, but stick with me. There there is a difference between being called children of God and sons of God. There is a word in the New Testament in Greek for children, and it's used at times to refer to believers as children of God. You know 1 John 3.1, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are, right? Children we are. Paul here uses the word for sons. We haven't been adopted as children. We've been adopted as sons. We become children of God by regeneration, by being born again. 
but we become sons of God by adoption. And as sons, we have all the rights and privileges of the son. We enjoy the the, the freedoms and the responsibilities and the privileges of being full-fledged sons of God. We enjoy the inheritance that our father has given to us in our elder brother, Jesus Christ. This is the privilege and the blessing, the gift of Christmas. You, you might still be a relatively new believer. Maybe you're a, a, babe, a babe in Christ. Maybe you haven't been a believer for very long and you've still got a lot of growing to do. Maybe you've been a believer for a long time and still have a lot of growing to do, right? Amen? But as far as your position in Christ goes, you are an adult son who has access to all that the Father has, and you can enjoy all the privileges of sonship. And one of the things that means is that God is for you. The God of the universe is not against you. He is not holding you at arm's length, waiting to see if you will do enough good stuff. He's made you a son. Do you remember what the father said about the son at his baptism? This is my beloved son. If you are in Christ, you are beloved by the father. Maybe this was at least part of what Paul had in mind in Romans 8. When he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We inherit all things that belong to Christ because we are sons of God. This is the teaching of the word of God. And the proof that you are his son is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in verse 6, the Holy Spirit assures you that you belong to God as one of his sons. And notice what he says the Spirit does for us. He enables us to cry, Abba, Father. If you want to know what the real privilege of being a son of God, where it really comes to light, it's right here. We don't fully grasp, I think, just how significant it is when Paul says that we cry out, Abba, Father, to God himself. The idea of addressing God as Father was foreign in the time of Jesus. You didn't do that. No one ever personally addressed God that way. This is why Jesus' prayers absolutely flabbergasted people during his ministry. You know, Jesus prayed, and then the disciples were like, could you teach us to pray like that? What do you think it was? I think it was this. He called God his Father. He talked to God as if he was in an intimate relationship with him. And then what does Jesus turn around and do? He teaches them to pray the same way. When you pray, say, our Father, right? This was was new. This is addressing God as if there was an intimacy, as if there's a relationship there, as if you're, you're already accepted and there's grace and mercy and love for you. But you'll notice Paul actually doubles down. It isn't just that we call God Father, but that we call him Abba. This is an Aramaic word. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek, but when Paul went to write this verse, he doesn't translate it into Greek. He leaves it in the Aramaic. Paul would have grown up speaking Aramaic in his 
home. That would have been the, the normal language for Jewish people at that time to speak. It would have been the heart language. And we know for, the, for those who speak multiple languages, when there's deep emotion to be expressed, they usually resort to their mother tongue, right? To their heart language. This is exactly why we have missionaries that we support um, translating scripture into mother tongue. The, the, the Weisses are in Tanzania translating the scriptures. There's already a Bible there in Swahili. Everybody speaks Swahili, but it's not the mother tongue. And Paul here, his mother tongue is Aramaic, and he can't help but add the Aramaic word in there, Abba, when he's talking about how he relates to God. And Abba was the word that a young child would use to refer to his father. It was a term of tenderness and familiarity. Now, let's think about this for a minute. What word does a four-year-old use to refer to his father? Daddy, Papa, it's about as close as we can come in English. And I tell you, if you're uncomfortable right now, I am too, right? It just doesn't seem appropriate to refer to the God of the universe that way, the God who will judge the living and the dead, the God who is a consuming fire. But why is that? What exactly are we saying? That God is too holy to hear you call him dad? I have news for us. He is too holy for us to call him anything, right? Changing the terminology is not going to help me. He doesn't hear the prayers of those who are in rebellion against him. But if you are in Christ, he hears you as his dear son. And you can call him dad, papa, whatever, because you belong to him. You are his son. I don't think we understand sonship. I don't understand it. Just how significant it is that we have been adopted and given all the rights that belong to the son of God himself. But if you have dared to believe the gospel, then you must dare to believe that your relationship to God is as precious as a beloved son to his loving father. You might outgrow calling your own human father daddy, but we better never outgrow calling God dad. That's how Paul concludes here in verse 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We, we miss a little bit of it here in our English because of the translation. If you look back at verse 6, it's in the plural. Because you, plural, are sons. God has spent this, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. But verse 7, he changes to the singular. And it's as if, as if Paul wants to address each and every individual believer in the Galatian church. He says, you and you and you and you are no longer a slave, but you and you and you and you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
This is what God has done for us in Christ. This is what he has done for us at Christmas. You are no longer a slave, but a son of God. You are no longer a little child, but a full-grown adult son with all the privileges of having God as your father. You're an heir with Christ. And let me close with just two points of application here. One is for those of you who are in Christ, and one is for those of you who are not yet born again. If you're a Christian, you know why we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Jesus' birth because he's purchased our redemption. He's borne our sins. He's secured our salvation. You know you can't be saved by works. You know that you're saved purely by God's grace through faith in Christ. He's redeemed you from the curse by his death for us. And yet, and yet, you and I are tempted to do what the Galatians were tempted to do, and that's to turn back to the very slavery that you were redeemed from. For the Galatians, it was the slavery of laws and regulations. For some of you, it's the same. It's the slavery of performance, relating to God purely on the basis of rules, believing that true Christianity is merely keeping all the rules. And the Apostle Paul would say to you the same thing he said to the Galatians, just a few verses down from where we read. Why would you turn back? Why would you turn back to those elementary principles of the world and become slaves again? You are sons. Live as sons. This Christmas, fall on your knees and praise God that he has sent his son to redeem you out of slavery and bring you into adoption as a son. A friend of mine recently told me that the the greatest propellant toward holiness for him has been the realization that he's been adopted into God's family. And now he's saying, "Why, why would I go down the road of sin when I belong in the family of God? Why would I dishonor my father that way since he has made me his dear child? And I think the surest motive to holy living is also the greatest reason for joyful living. And that is, we've been rescued from the slavery of performance and have been brought into God's family. If you are not yet a Christian, if you haven't yet been born again, I want to tell you this morning, you do not have to remain a slave. This Christmas could be the first Christmas where all of this talk about joy and all this singing about peace and rejoicing actually makes sense. You can know God, and you can know God as one of his sons if you'll bow the knee and worship Christ. You know, a little earlier I mentioned the prayers of Jesus. Every time Jesus prayed, he called God his father, except once except once, and that was on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by his father so that I could be forgiven, so that you could be forgiven. He was condemned so you could be accepted. He died so you might live. C.S. Lewis said, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. 
So fall on your knees. Confess your need for him. Cry out to him for mercy and believe that Jesus Christ, the one whose birth we're singing about, has died for you. And you too can be redeemed from your sin and made into a son of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do call you Father, for that is who you are to us. A dear, dear Father, one that we might even dare to call Dad. This is not because of any worthiness on our part, but due entirely to or uh, because of your grace toward us. You've loved us with a love that's beyond our comprehension. You've given us status as your children that's beyond our ability to understand. And Lord, we praise you for what you've done for us in sending Jesus Christ to this earth. We're, we're humbled at the cost that was required for Christ to redeem us and make us into your children. So Father, help us this Christmas season to, to revel in our status as your sons. Keep us from falling back into the bondage of legalism. May your spirit motivate us to live lives that bring honor to you because we love you. And remind us that even our love for you is only a response to your love for us. And Father, if there are those here this morning who cannot rightly call you Father because they've never received Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, then we pray this morning that you would open their eyes soften their hearts, and that this Christmas might be the first Christmas that they celebrate as one of your dear children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.